Welcome to another episode of Pod for Good. I am your chief philanthropod, Jesse Ulrich. And I'm your vice admiral philanthropod, Chris Miller. We are very excited to have Lindsay Jordan on the podcast today. Hi, Lindsay. Hello. How are you? I'm good. How was how was both of your Christmases? So low-key and relaxing. I stayed in my pajamas for an entire week. And I'm going to go ahead and admit this now. I think I only showered like three times in an entire <laughs> week, which nice. is not a lot for me. So it was it was glorious. Lots of baking and lots of laziness and playing with my kids' toys and acting like I was 12. So it was great. Other than the baking part, that sounds like my wife's uh, favorite version of Christmas, just hanging out, doing nothing, and wearing pajamas. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That, that, that's every Christmas for me, but that's because I don't celebrate Christmas, so I can do whatever I want. <laughs> we did Tex-Mex Christmas Eve. We did, mm. like, that's, so that's one of the traditions that came over from my husband's family. It's interesting to see which traditions mm-hmm. came from where, and they do Tex-Mex. So we made like a mess of nachos, like oh. a literal mess, and it was fabulous. Nice. I won't get Chris started on nachos. He has very detailed thoughts on how nachos should be made. <laughs> And baked and such what? I have detailed. They were baked. Nacho cheese or shredded cheese, Chris? So I actually like to do both, but <laughs> I won't get too far into it, but it depends for my wife. She likes very basic. So it's got to be shredded because she doesn't mm-hmm. want anything on it that can make the chips soggy, right? Your wife sounds like my kind of people. Yeah. I mean, yes. just in this brief description. Yes. I... No, I I tend to go overboard. So I end up making the other ingredients that I like on my nachos on the side. So I just make base nachos that are just like beans, cheese, and maybe meat. That's it. And then I have all my other stuff, my jalapenos and pico and guacamole, sour Mm, cream. So this is actually uh, a pod for nachos now. (laughs) I was going to say nachos for good, but either one works. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> oh goodness I, I wish i could find a fun transition to go from nachos to fundraising but i don't think <laughs> one exists <laughs> Lindsay, you are the ceo and founder of right on fundraising why don't you tell us what right on fundraising does oh we d- we do i'm gonna give you like the 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 banner like you know, write the tagline but that's of course not what we really do the tagline is that we provide fresh fundraising solutions for high impact nonprofit organizations. We do that through grant writing, we build annual funds, donor communications, and we run those big, fancy, fabulous capital campaigns. That's what we do in a nutshell. How we do it is really different. We're kind of disruptive. We break down a lot of norms. That's actually kind of why we exist is I spent 10 years fundraising and encountered all kinds of things that I thought, hey, there's there's got to be another way to do this right here. And basically, I found a bunch of people who think the same way. And we founded this company and took off with it. And now we raise a bunch of money and try to shake things up as much as we can. And for the most part, everybody's along for the ride. From my time in nonprofits, usually, there was not necessarily money to hire an outside company to help them do fundraising. So how does that work? Who are your customers and how do you work with them to work within their budgets, which they're obviously trying to increase, which is why they hired you in the first place? So there's this sweet spot. We talk about philanthropic equity a lot. And for us, that means plugging all of the holes. One of the things that I've always thought 
was just really surprising. I had the very good fortune all through my career. I worked as a nonprofit fundraiser for 10 years for uh, a couple different nonprofits. And they were really big nonprofits with national affiliations and big brands. And I was always really surprised at how many nonprofit organizations were in my orbit that were thought of as a lot smaller than we were but accomplished so much without all of the like fancy tools. Cause I never wanted for anything. I had all of the things I needed to do my job, but a lot of organizations like most nonprofit organizations don't have those tools. And I didn't realize that for most of my career. So one of the things that I started looking at before I founded this company was exactly who would need our help. Does anybody actually, is this just a kooky idea? Would anybody ever really need this thing? And one of the things that I found was over 60% of nonprofits operate on budgets of less than a million dollars a year. So that's the large majority of nonprofits. If you're operating on less than a million dollars, you probably don't have a director of development. You can't make major investments into your fundraising strategy. So basically, we are capacity builders. We come in and usually an organization has a goal, something that they want to do, something big that they want to accomplish. We build the strategy, we raise that money, and then we get out of the way. I have a coworker who refers to us as Mary Poppins fundraising, which I like a lot for lots of reasons. Who could who could be upset about being compared to Julie Andrews, right? Like that's that's pretty great. But it's also really true because we really come in and we fundraise and then we leave because our goal is not to replace anybody's development department, it's to help build a development department and help launch it and and build it up. So Really, what we do is a lot less expensive. It's easier to bring someone in to slowly build capacity than it is to just hire someone and make it an investment that you don't actually know if it's going to pay off or not. One of the things that I've heard through my whole career is that you can never expect a director of development to pay for their salary the first year. If they raise that much, then they're doing really well. That's a really low bar. (laughs) That's like a terribly low bar. So we try and combat some of that narrative around like the industrial complex and this like poverty mentality that persists within nonprofit organizations. So are, you're not you're not nonprofit consultants, right? You're not, not really okay because like you're, you you don't come you don't come in and tell the heads of nonprofits things they would know if they just asked the employees that work under them, <laughs> but get paid a lot more for it. Like, that sounds like something that's happened to you, Jesse. No, it's not like it's happened at every place I've worked. Anyway, well, this isn't about normal. me though. It's really, really normal, right, for a consultant to come in. And we, there are definitely, so there are actually have been a couple times when someone's wanted to hire us to do a certain thing. And we're like, hey, before you have us do that thing, have you asked anybody if that's the thing that needs to be done? Hmm. And so then in that case, yeah, we, we will come in and do the analysis and tell them. But for the most part, we show up to fundraise. Like we're actually the ones going on raising the money. So I also saw that you are one of the most admired CEOs in Oklahoma. So I, I think someone lost a bet last year. <laughs> is what happened. So how did it feel? And and I know they they had to move the ceremony online. What was it like to find out about it, be a part of that group and and the <laughs> celebration and everything? What's it like to be this awesome? It was really cool. <laughs> yeah, it was really, really cool. I'm gonna be honest with you. I and I think a lot of fundraisers will relate to this. Like, I never set out to be a CEO. I specifically never wanted to become an executive director or a CEO. Like, I've had great mentors and people who do that job. And I knew pretty early in my career that, like, that was not 
for me. That was for someone else. And then we started the company and it took off so quickly that I had to learn how to be a CEO on the fly. And so I started like taking the tidbits of all your favorite leaders, all the people who didn't totally screw it up. And you start like building this, this portfolio of who you could be. And I think I walked around for the entire first year of our business, just in such shock that it was working and that anybody wanted to hang out with us and let us help them fundraise, that when that happened, it was just, I don't know, it was just like, wow, it's time to throw a party. So since we couldn't all get together, we actually did throw a party. We sent everybody on our team like this package of balloons and confetti and like all the obnoxious oriental trading stuff that you could buy and we sent dinner to or lunch to everybody's house so everybody could eat together and then watch the ceremony together it was fun it felt like a team win after like all of the i think i'm slowly getting over what is probably my own imposter syndrome and just constantly being shocked that that this that it's working and it does work, which is amazing. So it was a very cool honor. I think it's actually a requirement for any guest on the pod have at least some level of imposter syndrome. Because yeah, no, I'm pretty sure yeah. that's come up in every podcast we've had. I mean, Chris and I certainly do not feel that about any of the things we do. We're very confident <laughs> human beings. They'll find out <laughs> In your answer to that question, I could already see why you'd be a great boss because you don't, you don't assume knowledge you don't have you are you obviously care about the uh, sort of emotional state of your employees. And oh, yeah. I like the idea of going from nonprofits and like specifically putting yourself as a CEO and not an executive director, which I feel like has connotations that are in some ways, in some ways good, in some ways different from the sort of nonprofit naming architecture as comes up mm -hmm. a lot because I like to make fun of BOK and how they give everyone vice president titles. I invented a title for myself when I started the company that was neither because I felt so weird about it. I just called myself a philanthropic advisor until I could figure out what the heck my title actually was. <laughs> I'm actually curious. Could you tell us a little bit of, of the story of Right On, where it came from, how you started it, and how you got to the point of actually having employees? In 2018, I was coming up on 10 years of having been within the sector and fundraising. And I felt really fortunate because all I've ever done is fundraising. And a lot of people who come to fundraising come to it from something else. I was lucky that it was my first job out of college and I just fell in love with it really, really quickly. And so it, it had been all I had ever done. And like I mentioned earlier, in that 10 year time span, like, I think when you're really devoted to something and it's really central to who you are, you see the good, the bad, and the ugly. And I had just started seeing a lot of ugly. And there were things within the sector that I just, I, I just didn't understand why they were accepted norms. For example, I mentioned the poverty mentality, right? The scarcity mentality that is really, really persistent within nonprofit organizations. There's also the industrial nonprofit complex, which is basically this idea where you have to have fundraising to keep nonprofits going. But if you look at where wealth comes from, from a lot of really wealthy individuals, sometimes that wealth is a result of the oppression that causes some nonprofits to exist. Not in every case, but in some cases, that's a very real thing. So there was all this contradictory philosophy and all, all of these different things that were happening. And the real life consequences of that that I saw were I had colleagues that were spinning out. I mean, totally burning out, really 
remarkable fundraisers who were leaving after a year and a half, two years, never to return. CEOs that were run off by boards that didn't know what they were doing. There was a lot of collateral damage to poor management of the nonprofit sector. And in the last place I worked, I actually experienced, I, it was, it was crazy. Some, what's the best way to say this? Some real institutional racism in a way that I had never experienced it before. I mean, I'm a very privileged white woman and I haven't had to deal with a lot of it. I know what it looks like from having worked in some social justice organizations, but I had never come face to face with it before. And at this particular organization, we had a, a director level person who was systematically excluding black people from the candidate pool. It was bad. Like it was as bad as bad could get. And it blew up the whole organization. And of course, when something like that happens, all the stones get turned over, right? So then all the skeletons come out of the closet and all it just went nuts from there. I walked away from that situation so frustrated that I don't know, like I had a greater purpose that I needed to figure out what it was. And so I was inspired by a friend of mine who took a sabbatical, which is not something that I would have ever even considered doing at any point in my life, but she did it. And I was like, oh my gosh, that's, that's what needs to happen. And so I did, I took a three month sabbatical, which was the longest, hardest, most frustrating three months ever. Cause I am really bad at sitting still and not trying to solve problems. And I promised myself that like during this time, I was not gonna try and solve any of these problems. I was just gonna learn as much as I could. And so I would ask a question, why do fundraisers only last 16 months? How much research is there on that? And I would read everything I could read and then that would just lead me to another question and then I would read some more. So by the end of that three months, I knew exactly what I wanted to accomplish with Right On Fundraising um, because I could have just, what do they say, hang a shingle, whatever it is. Like I could have just done that, right? And started fundraising. But I, I needed to understand why and I needed to understand what I wanted to accomplish. And I felt like after that three month period that provided the clarity that I was really looking for, like who we were gonna be, how we were gonna go about raising money for people and how we were gonna be different than what you would see on the inside of a nonprofit. And I think that's why, I mean, I started as myself and I remember making a joke to my husband that we might need to hire someone at year three, perhaps. We we're not three years in yet, and we're at 15, a team of 15 people, and we have a whole bunch more hires coming up next year. So it, I think the reason that it went gangbusters and grew so fast is because we had a lot of clarity around who we were and what we were going to accomplish, and it's, it's because of that terrible three-month stillness in my life. <laughs> I mean, I, I say that sounds great. And then I'm like, no, after a week, I would... Oh, man. i try to learn a new skill or something. I mean, mm -hmm. we're, I think we're, we're like a generation of people who are not good at relaxing. <laughs> I can't... I'm trying to imagine Jesse like, doing nothing for a week. That's the only reason I let myself go on cruises. It's the one place I'm forced to relax. Like, there's nothing to do. <laughs> So I just sit in a hot tub for a week and, and it's great. Surrounded like, by old people. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, I mean, I go, I go between the hours of three and five when they're eating. So, <laughs> but, you know, I mean, I, I, I think it's a combination of our, our upbringing and the socioeconomic status we're all stuck in. We just, we, we just don't take 
three months off. No. Like Europeans do for some reason. Coaching every week. I was on literally on the phone with my dad every week, who is is kind of a bit of a life coach in his own way, coaching me how to sit still and not do anything. Like it was, that was the coaching I was receiving, how to do less <laughs> of my day. Yeah. No, no, I mean, I, sitting still is hard. Like, functionally sitting still like just like zoning out you can do for a while but like actually trying to be present but still is hard right. i mean there's literally meditation classes on how to do that oh. and I, I can't get through those without needing to go do something else so right. <laughs> i noticed now like you have i mean offices we're all working remotely these days but you have you have employees now in oklahoma city and in fayetteville correct that's right yep we so, just we opened in Oklahoma City right before COVID hit. And then we took our time with Fayetteville because we were opening an office during a pandemic. And that was a bit touch and go. But yeah, we're up and running in all three now. So I, I remember when the pandemic first started, like the first couple of months from March to June, there were a lot of like articles in the nonprofit world about how like foundation giving had increased during that mm -hmm. time. And I'm wondering, did that continue? And how did nonprofits handle the end of summer fiscal year sl slash end of yeah. ask actual calendar year slash giving tuesday slash all the other nonprofit fundraising days during this pandemic and how did that affect the work that right on fundraising does so it's been an interesting year for fundraising right everybody made a lot of predictions in the spring about what was going to happen I honestly thought that the bubble might burst in foundation giving, mainly not necessarily because of the pandemic, but because it's been 10 years of great market conditions and uh, private foundations, corporate foundations have done really, really well. So I thought, oh, maybe this is it. Like we've been waiting for the bubble to burst. This might be the thing. And just like in the Great Recession, we saw foundations step up in a major way. This is actually something that we see in a crisis across the board, which I think is an incredible testament to what philanthropy is actually about. Even in the Great Recession, when we saw wealth and income nosedive for a lot of families, individual giving climbed, getting increased. I think it was like 6% higher giving or something like that. We're going to end this year with one of the biggest philanthropic booms that we've ever seen. And it's because foundations dug deep and they set up new funds and they dipped into their to their balance and to their principal to stretch and make things happen. Now, that doesn't mean that every single nonprofit out there cleaned up shop this year, because obviously that did not happen. I think that giving this year was more selective. Foundations really cared about the work that was happening on the front lines. Obviously, direct services, people who were feeding the hungry, those were things that got a lot of attention and got a lot of money. The arts were really hurt this year. We had a couple of arts clients who made really hard decisions about their fundraising. And I honestly, I was a big proponent of them keeping going because I, I felt like foundations and individuals were going to show up. But I think that a lot of people were just really nervous, especially folks who rely on performances things like that, where you can't have actually have people in the seats. That's just really hard. But for 20, 2021 is actually going to be, I think, more telling than 2020, uh, because this was the year that everybody came together and stretched and dug deep and took care of all the people we needed to take care of. And I think at the end of the year, we will see numbers that put other years to shame. And 
by the way, that's saying something because 2019 was also a huge year for giving because so many people were afraid of what changes to the tax code meant. Um, and everybody thought, oh God, all these changes that Trump has made, no one's gonna give. Well, all the donors like overcompensated for that basically and gave more than ever in response to the tax code. So saying that we could do more in 2020 than 2019 is really, really significant. 2021 is gonna be the year that tells us what we really need to know because so many foundations did dig into their principal to help this year that it means that they have so if you are earning five percent on let's say you've got a hundred thousand dollars in the bank you're earning five percent on it you dig into your principal you take it down to 50 because you had things you need to take care of so next year in 2021 they're still going to get their five percent but it's going to be on 50 grand instead of a hundred thousand so they're going to have less to give away so i think that more than anything else is what's actually going to impact people who rely on foundation giving i feel bad for lots of people during this pandemic but like the arts organizations who they have a hard job when things are going well mm -hmm. because it's much harder to there are things that are easier to raise money on like fundraising for a hospital right that was always the dream gig for me in development like hospital job right taking care of people but challenging someone like create uh, creatively or getting someone to understand a weird funky ballet raising money for that is hard because people are always like well this other organization i support gives right. food to the homeless like why are you more important than that and I know they've I've, I know they've had a rough. I know there was some either like state or federal money mm -hmm. geared towards art organizations, but I do feel for all the art organizations, and I hope I hope twenty twenty I hope twenty twenty one is better for them at least. Right. So, God, I, I miss mean, shows. I the good news is that a lot of arts organizations, it's good and bad. A lot of arts organizations rely on individuals, right? And individuals will show back up for the arts organizations, but they're only gonna show up when they can safely sit in theaters and in performances and things like that. So yeah, they are in some ways insulated from like these big market crises because they don't rely on foundations, but having that reliance on individuals can be tricky when <laughs> once every millennia you're hit with a pandemic or whatever. Especially if they have a large building that they still have to pay rent and electricity exactly. on. Exactly. So you teased earlier that you have a sister nonprofit organization. We do. So can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. What it is, what it does? So our sister organization is called Philanthrope. Try saying it 10 times fast. I'm really bad at naming things, but it's called Philanthrope. I got five. And it was not a part of the original plan. So one of the things that happened that was really surprising right out of the gate, right when I started right on, was we had a lot of folks come to us who were in startup phase. I didn't even know nonprofit startups existed. I did not know that was a thing. And we would sit down and we would talk and it would be clear to me pretty quickly that we could not help them. There's certain things that you, you need to have in place before fundraising can be really effective, like having your 501c3 status already taken care of or your board of directors built like these things sound really foundational to us but for a startup they take time right and resources to get all those things going so we would sit down and talk and i'd kind of tell them what they need to do next and they would leave and i always felt really frustrated by those conversations and i'm sure they did too because there was no accountability there was no place i could send them where they could get all the answers they were looking for 
And I was at 36 degrees north at the time. And my office there was right across from Tulsa Tech. And Amy Hamilton there is a good buddy of mine. And I was just venting to her one day about like how frustrating this was to not be able to help this big group of people who had like amazing ideas and some really disruptive, cool things that they wanted to accomplish. And she said, well, why don't you just do it? (laughs) (laughs) What? (laughs) And so we sat down and started to think of it and we created without really knowing it or without knowing what the language was, the only nonprofit accelerator for startups in the state. And at the time we were calling it an incubator because I didn't know what an incubator was. So it's actually an accelerator. And at this point we have four or five cohorts that have gone all the way through. So it's we're almost like 50 people deep now. And they are really, really cool organizations. So it's a 10 week training program. That's Rally Point. That's the business accelerator. It's $150, so we don't make any money off of it. That covers the cost of just the materials. And then all of my staff that I mentioned all come from nonprofit background. They teach all the classes. So there's basically no expense to us to put the thing on. It's just us doing what we like to do, which is for us a lot of fun, obviously. And the other thing that we do, which really came about this year is, and this has actually been something that's been, as a fundraiser, a point of frustration for my whole career, and that is the lack of diversity in the field of fundraising. Fundraisers are basically white and female, like 70% of fundraisers. And so having a diverse pipeline of talent has always been a real challenge. And this year, with the killings of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor, like it emphasized for our team something that we had already been talking about and already knew. We went through this big hiring phase in the spring and we were all sitting on this call together for the first time, like the whole team, uh, just like introducing each other. And everybody just kind of got really quiet and looked around and someone finally said, wow, this is a really white group. And we were all like, oh yeah, it, it really is. So we were in the middle of this conversation of how to be really intentional about diversifying our team when these killings happened and really started gaining traction in the media. And so my team, probably half of which at least were participating in marches and who were really involved, came to me and said, we we want to do something. We want to do something really tangible and really specific. And I pushed back because... I felt on Facebook, for example, I'd seen this post and it like struck at my core. Sometimes you see something and it just is so honest that it like hurts. I saw a post that someone had made that basically said, yeah, thanks for that great press release. Now show me what your board of directors looks like. And I was like, oh, that's us. And if we come out and say something right now, it's no matter if we mean it, it's still going to feel disingenuous because we aren't practicing that. And I, I didn't want us to be disingenuous because this is obviously too big and too important. So we sat down and we figured out what we could do immediately. And they really drove this whole strategy. And we did three things. The first one was to make a donation to an organization that focuses specifically on black justice. So we made a $5,000 donation to that. We did put out a statement because it was important to the team for them to put out a statement. And then the third thing that we did is we launched this new program through Philanthropy called Pathways to Philanthropy. And it is a grant writing apprenticeship paid 
for black, indigenous, and people of color who are interested in learning how to become grant writers. It's a national program. So we launched that in the fall. And that's so those are really kind of the two core programs of Philanthropy, the Business Accelerator and this, this apprenticeship program, which as far as I know is the only one of its kind in the country because we've been trying to find other people who we can like collaborate with. And there's, like I said, there's not a lot of entry points for Black, Indigenous, and people of color to get into the fundraising realm. And I, I in building this program, I talked to a couple of my colleagues about why that is, and they had some really, really fantastic feedback. First of all, I mean, there's all the challenges that come with fundraising anyway, which Jesse knows all, all about. But then on top of that, people of color are sometimes assumed in interviews that they don't have circles of wealth that are similar to white folks. There's also this idea that they just don't have the same skill set, which is just kind of patently and untrue and kind of easily to, easy to disprove, but it's the stigma, I suppose. And then the third piece is that they don't have personal networks of wealth. So they just, they can't dig deep. So all of those things we thought, those are our perceptional issues that we can tackle. Oh no, the networking component or the mentorship component was the third piece. So not having uh, proper mentors. So we kind of took aim at all three of those things in this apprenticeship program. So it is the hard skills, first and foremost, of learning how to do the thing, right? Then secondly, is the whole second year of the apprenticeship, because it's two years, the whole second year is devoted to developing a network of wealth. So meeting donors and developing personal relationships with donors. And then the third component, mentorship, we're partnering with the AADO, which is African American Development Officers, which is awesome organization in Atlanta, because we want so our, our, the people in this program are from all over the United States, and we want to have a diverse set of mentors. And as a white woman, I know that there are things that I just don't get that our apprentices are going to go through, and they need mentors who get it, right? So we can't mentor the people who are in this program as well as, as, as people, as BIPOC can. So that's kind of the program. We're really excited about it. Actually, I can't wait to start hiring people out of this program. <laughs> That's what I'm looking forward to. You mentioned something earlier that I knew they were two different things, but I still don't know what is the difference between them. What's the difference between an accelerator and an incubator? Oh, my gosh. Let me tell you. No. So there's an actual definition for what an incubator is. And typically, an incubator includes a physical space. So it includes a desk or it includes a resource or an office of some kind, whereas an accelerator is more like a training program that you're going through. Okay. The incubator can have both components. So like okay. a 36 degrees north could be like an incubator. Yeah. If they have well, they have an incubator that they're gearing up for, which is super exciting. So the, the 36 degrees as it is right now is a gym. Basically, instead of having a personal trainer, where the incubator is the personal trainer piece. Oh, gotcha. okay, okay. So when we're talking about nonprofit startups, we're we're talking about the like the our our good friend Tommy Yap and the Tulsa Voter Van. They organizations that are using another nonprofit as their like financial sponsor. Is that what we're talking about? Those type of organizations. That's a great question. So that's called a fiduciary agent. Is the real IRS term for it? So. Those people, are, those folks are included in it, but no, we're not just talking about those. Okay. Some startups, 
So startups is kind of a broad category for nonprofits because you have people who are truly in startup mode, like they're piloting, they're in ideation. Then you have early stage people who've been doing it for a minute, but are still trying to figure it out. Then you have restarts frequently in nonprofits. Someone will have an incredible idea. They have something that's happened to them in their personal life, right? And they want to, they're inspired or they feel passionate about a specific thing. They go out and try to do that thing and they fall flat on their face because there was like 8,000 things they didn't know. So then they have to come back to the starting board and restart the whole organization. And we see a lot of that too. Doesn't it take like, you have to do a series of things before you're able to get your 501c3 sort of status, right? But you have, like, have to have a board already and all these other things. Or actually, you know what? Tell me what the steps are. <laughs> How about that? Yeah. So it's, the actual process of getting your 501c3 status is really simple. It's just paperwork. You actually don't have to have your board. It will may come as a surprise to you that the state of Oklahoma has very little regulation around around the board. Uh, and as to be honest, and the state law is that you actually only have to have one person on your board. Uh, is the state of what? Oklahoma? I know. I could have I could have made my production company a nonprofit that easily. Ah <laughs> oh, well. Hmm. The federal government requires that when you fill out your paperwork, you have what are called incorporators. And you only have to have three of them. And they're not a board. That's not the same thing as a board. It's just three people who agree to vouch for what you're trying to do, right? And mm -hmm. you are typically one of them. And I don't know, your mom. No, I'm kidding. Don't have your mom be it. Like real potential board idea. members should be your incorporators. <laughs> And then when you get your status, your very first board meeting where you pass your bylaws and you set up all of the boring, really, really important things, then you can vote your incorporators onto the board to be your first board members. But they're not technically, like there's no voting, there's no fiduciary responsibility, none of that when you just submit your paperwork. It takes, right now it's taking about six months. There's two forms. So the long form takes about six months to get through right now. The short form takes about three weeks. So, and it's three pages long. But making assumptions about our audience, but I feel like a lot of our audiences, they either heavily support nonprofits or work for nonprofits themselves. And so to those frustrated few, what, what would you tell them about how to make internal change to how fundraising is done in their organization? Not knowing the specifics of their problems, but knowing the sort of general issues that have come up. <laughs> Oh, man, that is a really, can I give you six answers instead? Yes. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so one of the things that we really got after when we started the company is we started tackling this list of the six reasons why nonprofit fundraisers leave. And they're really specific. Oh, let me see if I can remember all six of them. Now that I'm on the spot, I'm going to definitely forget one. But the first one is pay. You hear people complain about pay a lot. And sometimes that's merited and sometimes it's not. I'm going to be honest. My salary ranged from $35,000 to $75,000 in the 10 years I worked for a nonprofit. And I felt like that was always pretty generous. But then again, I worked at bigger organizations, right? But pay is definitely an issue, especially if you work at a smaller organization. So paying a competitive wage and what that means, competitive means different things to different organizations, but In really being intentional uh -huh, about what competi competitive means. So the pay is a big one. Another really big one is unrealistic fundraising expectations. 
and I definitely experienced this. I feel like you basically get two different kinds of boards when you're a fundraiser. You either get the board that is way too excited about fundraising and is all up into the, the, the details and like way into the weeds, or you get a board that's, yay, we hired a fundraiser. Our job is done. Uh, we don't need to do anything else. And neither of those are particularly helpful, right? You really need a board that comes down the line and works with you um, to both create realistic goals and to actually fundraise. Another one is having the right resources. So this is something that we combat on behalf of our clients. So we subscribe, for example, to all of like the grant databases and all this stuff. One of the things I was most shocked at was that foundation directory, which is now candid, houses everything you would ever want to know about a grant. Who gives the money? Who's on the board of trustees? How much they give? What the deadline is? Like literally everything you would need to know to win money. And it costs two grand a year. Most small nonprofits cannot afford a subscription service that is two grand a year. They're thrilled if they get a grant that is two grand, right? Not having access to the resources and the tools you need to actually get out there and fundraise is another big one. Poor management is one. Like I mentioned earlier, a lot of people who come to the nonprofit sector come from somewhere else. There's no degree that anyone has ever had in undergraduate for how to be a professional fundraiser. You just learn on the fly. And actually the whole nonprofit sector is like that. We're lucky in Oklahoma that we have the Center for Nonprofits and they offer a lot of really great management classes. So we may be ahead of the game there, but having management that doesn't have the same standards across the board of what good nonprofit management looks like is a good way to run off your employees. So unrealistic goals. Yes. Too many bad managers. Lack of resources. No secession path or career advancement opportunities. So when we talk about what we do, we say these are the things that we do. But when we're talking about like how we do it, that's how we do it. We are taking aim at those things. We're paying people a really good rate and we're giving them all the resources that they need. And we're setting realistic expectations, many of which have nothing to do with how much money they raise. Like all of these things are they're considered really disruptive inside the nonprofit sector, but they're just common sense, right? Like, of course, of course, your workforce is not going to respond well to bad management. Of course, they're not going to respond well to being poorly compensated. So I would, I mean, I would love to say there's like some magic bullet or some magic ingredients that could make nonprofits more sustainable or keep their employees longer. But to be totally honest, it's just implementing some things that for-profits have been doing for a long time and prioritizing your people. I think that's really, really hard. That's the one thing that I saw. Even my best CEOs sometimes make the mistake of doing was the client was always first. And while the client is the person you're serving and obviously the reason your organization exists, your people are who you have to take care of. If you are, are not taking care of your people, you are not going to be able to accomplish your mission. Well, and along those lines, I know for a long time, there was sort of this harmful stigma that a nonprofit had to have a certain percent of their budget to keep their admin costs below a certain amount, and it forced them to underpay their employees and effectively result in higher turnover and less of ability 
to raise more money and actually support their people. It feels like that is changing some though, that more savvy philanthropic and foundations and individuals are kind of picking up on that. Like business, you've got to spend money to make money and nonprofits, they need the money to pay the employees so they can better serve their people. Yeah. Also part of what has changed is that nonprofits are getting better about the language that they use to describe what they do. We work with our clients on that a lot. They'll say, well, we have X amount of overhead. And I'll say, well, how much of your CEO or your executive director's salary in that? They spend half their time doing programs. So half their salaries over here in your programs column. Same with even marketing and communications. If half of your marketing is specifically to help get people in the door to get programs, then there's a portion of your marketing budget that's actually programming. So it's a lot of reframing. And that's part of that conversation with donors about what do you really mean by overhead? What's true overhead? What's the true cost of doing business? What has happened to development work (laughs) during this pandemic? Is it just uh, like Zoom meetings? It's super weird. So I actually just was talking to a donor about this last week on a big capital campaign that we're working on. And we're getting to the point in this capital campaign where it's time to go start asking for these six and seven figure gifts. And I'm I'm sitting here thinking, oh man, I'm going to have to wear like a hazmat suit and carry around gallons of hand sanitizer to go in and have these meetings. And I was talking to a a donor who's also working on the campaign and she laughed and said, nope, you go in and you make the exact same ask that you would have made person to person and you just do it over Zoom. Like the idea that someone would commit to a seven figure gift over Zoom blows my mind, but that's what's happening. That's how it's changed. The, the, The major giving and the major donors have evolved right alongside everything else. And she loves it. Like she told me she never wants to go back (laughs) to the old way, which is really unfathomable. If you think about all of these tropes about fundraising being happening on the golf course and all these things that happen in person and all this schmoozing basically, right? And none of that is happening and they're still giving. So I think it's time for us to enter and I should get like a sound drop for this. Like our final questions. (laughs) It's the Question. The final question. During the COVID p- pandemic, what have you been doing to like sort of keep yourself sane and calm and not depressed? Like Chris and I are both pop culture nerds, so we usually have some sort of pop culture comfort food that we're watching or reading. But I always like to ask our guests, what is it? What do you escape to when you need to relax during this crazy time? That's a great question. This is going to sound terrible. (laughs) So 2020 is the year that I discovered that I can actually spend time by myself and my kids won't like melt or have nervous breakdowns and my house won't catch on fire and everything will be fine. So I've actually done a really good job this year at carving out time just for myself. For Mother's Day this year, I, by myself, this was huge. I checked into a hotel room by myself, a really nice hotel room, by the way. Uh, I checked into the Tulsa Club, I got a great room, I closed the blinds, 
I binge watched Parks and Rec. I ordered room service. Nice. I walked around the halls because nobody was there. It was, it was a pandemic. Clearly, nobody was there but me um, in my robe with a bottle of champagne. And I had the best time ever. <laughs> it was like the best experience. And so carving out really intentional time just for myself, like I didn't have to answer my phone. I didn't have to answer an email. I didn't have to wipe anybody's nose. I didn't have to make a snack. I didn't have to be anything but the the chick in the casino walking around with a open champagne bottle. That's all I had to do in the hotel. Sorry. So that was cool. I also watched a lot of The West Wing. I rewatched a lot of like my favorite shows, especially the ones that made me feel really hopeful. Like leading up to the election, I was clinging to President Bartlett with like my whole being. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, there's a very there's a literally a specific four year gap in the last decade when I did not watch The West Wing. It just happened to be from November 2016 to November 2020, mm -hmm. and then a certain event happened. And I'm a lot, and I I feel okay watching The West Wing again, <laughs> but there was a lot of Parks and Rec in between that because right. that one just like that one cheered me up. Mm -hmm. Now we have the answer to one of our other questions we sometimes ask, which is people who are involved in political things. What's their politics show? So we know you're a Parks and Rec person. I am a Parks. So that's good for sure. Yeah. Yes. So the, so the last question we always ask is we just want to give you one last chance to plug anything. Do you have anything you want to get out there, upcoming uh, events online or otherwise, or, or anything that, that our, our listeners should know sure. about? Sure. So we're doing a fundraising masterclass in 2021. One of the things we learned in 2020 is people really want us to teach classes. And I, I fought against that for a long time. People really wanted us to do it. So we decided in 2021 to go ahead. We're like posing it, speaking of pop culture as like, don't, don't become a Jedi master, become a fundraising master. So it's all a bunch of Star Wars humor, which I think my communications nice. manager mm. is about sick of, but I'm having a lot of fun with this like Star Wars themed <laughs> marketing campaign, but we'll do it every month and it's for an hour and a half and we'll do networking when we can be in person. We'll do it in person. It'll be live streamed. So if you're not in Tulsa or Oklahoma City where we're shooting it, you can still tune in over lots and lots of different topics. None of them boring. Lots of good meaty stuff. What's the, what's the best Star Wars related like pun or joke that you tell during this? Oh man. What was it I said? Oh man, I had a really good Yoda one about give me money, you will. I thought it was hilarious. Um, <laughs> I was thinking like a, a, a do, there is no try when it comes to fundraising. <laughs> pretty good. The memes are going to come yeah. hot and heavy, I think, here pretty soon. I'm definitely now putting different nonprofit job types into like dark side, light side combinations. Oh, yes. So, <laughs> Ooh, I may recruit your help for this. <laughs> yeah, listen, listen, Chris and I are great at bizarre nerd trivia so we yeah. are happy to help but chris is very good at puns so mm -hmm. we are here to assist you thank you for taking this time to talk with us thank you thank you all for listening to our episode with Lindsay jordan from right on fundraising i hope you enjoyed it as much as chris and i did Lindsay is a delight and if you are in an organization that needs help raising money she is the perfect person to talk to Again, from Pod for Good, we hope you all had a happy New Year's and, you know, are surviving the collapse of our democracy. And if our democ democracy survives and you are an organization looking to sponsor something wonderful for 2021, Pod for Good is still looking for sponsors. So with that, I will close with Get It Done, Telsa. 
And please, please, Broken Arrow, I'm looking at you again. Wear a mask. <laughs>